Oregon football's path to the Pac-12 championship game looks a little different than it used to thanks to the conference's new rule. How different could the schedule look year by year going forward? We'll discuss that today. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Oh, yes, it is that time once again for Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin, D1 play-by-play broadcaster and lifelong Oregon Ducks fan. Thank you for making this your first listen or your first view if you're watching on YouTube every day. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks every weekday. Like, comment, subscribe wherever you're listening to or watching the show right now. Five-star reviews. Hop in the YouTube comments. Get active on the show. Send me a question on Twitter at Smalls underscore 55 or at Locked on Ducks. You can also tweet with the hashtag AskLODPod. Get a question answered right here on the show, which we've been doing this week and will continue doing this week. But first, we start with the future of Oregon football scheduling. Now, I'm always fascinated by schedules, and they factor in rather heavily to how successful a team can actually be in in 2022. For those of you who don't know, I also host the Locked On Pac-12 show here at the Locked On Podcast Network. One thing I was talking about recently are potential dark horse teams to win the the Pac-12 championship. And one thing that I was examining there when I'm thinking about, okay, which team could uh, be competitive, have a good roster? UCLA is one. I do think Oregon State is one. Maybe Arizona State. The only reason I really have ASU in there is because of their schedule. Your schedule matters a great deal. Because remember, if you have nine conference games, some teams are going to play five conference road games, and some teams are going to play four conference road games. Obviously, the teams that have only four conference road games have a significant advantage. That is no more true for any team than Oregon. I don't know if I said that correctly, but that's okay. You understand what I'm getting at here because Oregon's record at Autzen has been among the best home field advantages, I don't know, last decade plus. I mean, it has been really, really elite. And so that's why I think this scheduling is is such a fascinating thing to look at. So uh, for those of you who are not watching yesterday or listening yesterday, just a brief rundown. The Pac-12 announced that the importance of divisions is no more in the conference, right? They pushed to get rid of the regulation at the national level from the NCAA. So conferences can now decide whether or not to have divisions factor into how you decide who will play in your ch- conference championship game, or you can just go off the base, or go, go based off of the highest winning percentage in league play, which is what the Pac-12 and a lot of other leagues are going to do, which I think is the right move to get the two best teams in the championship game. Would have helped Oregon a, a couple years. I think it was 2012 and 2000 and I forgot what the other one was, but Oregon would, would have been in the Pac-12 championship game. That Chip Kelly Marcus year with uh, Earths was out. Yeah, that team would have been in the conference championship game. And had there been a college football playoff, might have might have been in. But anyway, we can't change that now. So looking at scheduling here is, I think, fascinating because if you're going to make a rule as they have that is going to be implemented as of this year, that is making divisions obsolete in terms of their importance, the logical next step is to get rid of them altogether. The reason that they're currently staying in place, I would imagine, 
is because they allow for some semblance of consistency and rhythm when it comes to scheduling and teams have an idea of who they're going to play in, in which year and which teams, which two teams in the conference you're not going to play in a given year or maybe over a, a couple of years. So there's some things we don't know, but I'll, let's start with the things that, that we as Duck fans should want going forward. Now, some of you may disagree with this, but this is just kind of where I'm at when I think about Oregon getting back to the college football playoff. You have to be willing to go toe-to-toe with the best. You have got to be able to go and play in Auburn at a neutral site or play in LSU at a neutral site. I think it's good for your program to do that in a non-conference sense, but it's true when you're looking at Pac-12 opponents as well. I'm just about that smoke. I think if you're going to get to a college football playoff level as a team and as an organization and you're going to win a national championship, you've got to be able to – you think Alabama's ever been scared of anybody? You think Georgia's scared of anybody? No, doesn't matter. That's the sort of attitude I think you have to approach it with. So one thing I think we should want going forward, even though it might bite Oregon in uh, – bite them in the butt sometimes, is I want USC every year. I do. I, I really do. Those are game day caliber games. Once Lincoln Riley gets them up to uh, a top 20 and ultimately I think top 10, maybe even top five level each year in college football. I think those are big time games for Oregon. You get the fans rowdy and, and rocking early morning at Autzen. And I mean, th- think of the biggest wins for Oregon over the past 10, 15 years in the regular season. How many of them came when game day was there? Right is those are the sorts of matchups you want. Obviously, you want to be able to win them. <laughs> you know, you want to in 2010 beat Stanford. Oh, was it 52 to 31 at, at Autzen, or the next year 53 to 30 down in, in Palo Alto at uh, at the Cardinal Stadium. You know, I, as a Pac-12 fan writ large, it's the best move for the conference because you want to be able to have matchups as often as possible that you can put on national TV games. And we should want that as a program as well, because you want to get as much exposure as you can and put the best product on the field and be playing in prime time, because that's when more people are watching, get more eyeballs to it, more attention to the program. Everybody should want that. And so I, as an Oregon fan, yeah, I want to play USC every year. I I really do. And if you're worried about that, what I will say is if you can't beat USC every year, you're not going to get to that coveted national championship season that we're all looking for. You're just not. And if you play them every year, you understand where you're going to need to be to get to that level once Lincoln Riley has them where I believe he will get them to, which is probably a top 10 caliber program. I think it'll take a year or two, but I'm pretty confident he's going to be able to get there. Recruiting resources, scheme, he like he, he's, he's going to be fine. And I want Oregon to be at their best. I, I want Oregon to be at their best, and to do that, you have to play the best. Iron sharpens iron and all that sort of stuff. I, you know, If you can't beat the best team in your conference or a, a program that could become the best team in your conference, whether that's USC or whether that's Utah or maybe if Chip really gets things rolling at UCLA, whoever it is, I want to play them and I want to beat them because that's the only way that you're going to be at a place as a football team and as a program pronounced correctly of course you're not going to get to the level you want to if you're trying to skirt your way through the pac 12 of all conferences and saying like no i'd rather miss usc and play colorado and arizona that i think you have to be more aspirational 
than that. As a fan, you have to be willing to say, yeah, I, I want to play this team. And so I, I hope we see USC every year. Maybe we won't, right? It's a, that's a big time unknown. But when I think about what I would like to see come about with the potential schedule changes on a conference-wide level, I want to see Oregon and USC playing all the time. I, I really, really do. I'm, I'm about that smoke. I want those big games, and I want Oregon to to be in them because I think it's a good look for the school, and it's even better when, when we come out on top. Some things are likely to stay the same. I'll tell you after I remind you that our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. You can find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's basketball playoffs, Major League Baseball scores. Go Mariners. I was at the game earlier tonight. They got a nice little victory. Fights and even next season's NFL futures. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering information from live betting to playoffs, esports, and more. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. Bet Online, where the game starts. Okay, so. There are a lot of changes that are likely to come in terms of who Oregon plays every year, but some things are going to stay the same. Okay. Oregon State, Washington, Stanford, I can't see them going anywhere. I, I just, there's no way, you know, whenever the divisions do go away, I can't see a scenario where Oregon and Oregon State don't play in a season or where Oregon and Washington don't play in a season. Doesn't mean that every Pac-12 North opponent is going to be a regular on the schedule. I, I think Stanford will probably fall into that category, but a Cal, a Wazoo, I think you could have some seasons where in the rotation of teams that Oregon doesn't play, depending on how the conference approaches it, you know, we don't have a, an inclination one way or another about, you know, how they're going to set that that sort of stuff up or whether, you know, it, it's possible they keep divisions for scheduling purposes, just kind of forever and say, well, they just don't, they don't mean anything in the realm of who's going to play in the conference championship game, but Oregon state, Washington, Stanford, I think those ones are pretty safe. We, we will see them every year. I'd imagine, I would imagine not sure, right? Because I'm coming at it from, you know, a, a conference. If I'm Pac 12 commissioner, I want to put my best teams on the same field on Saturdays in the fall as often as I can because I want to create those big-time matchups that create a lot of attention, that create hype, maybe your college game day, or at the very least are nationally televised rather than just being on the Pac-12 network. So I would think Utah is going to be there pretty regularly, and I would put USC there every year as well, but both those teams come from the South, so it's not necessarily a built-in matchup per se. But that's one of the questions that I have going forward about how they're going to determine scheduling is what is their priority going to be? Because the other side of the coin from a commissioner's perspective is if you're trying to get a team back to the college football playoff, do you want a relatively easier conference schedule so that they can have a better record and show that to the committee? Or do you want to have a quality regular season product on, on any given Saturday where you could, you know, potentially be getting game day or just kind of a lot of eyeballs or, you know, you know, amongst the fans in the conference that it's going to be a, a big time game. So I think that's a consideration that we have to look out for. But I, I think that, the you know, Oregon and Utah have now met twice in the Pac-12 championship game. People have noticed that the, the brand of Utah football is certainly growing on a national level. So I would think Utah will be there pretty consistently, but I'm not in, I'm not entirely certain. That's just kind of my, my prediction there. 
uh, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, not every Pac-12 North team is necessarily going to be there. I, I think the ones that are, are the most likely to for us to miss in a given season are Cal and Wazoo. You know, you know, there's not a lot of uh, storied rivalry between those two schools in, in Oregon, and there's also just you know not usually a, as much buzz. And those are two schools that can kind of get down as program programs as well. They're programs. We are programs, of course. Um, but, you know, w- one other thing to consider here for Oregon is w- with the potential scheduling changes that, that will take place in the future, could you have any new rivalries develop? M- maybe if you start playing a team every year like a USC or a Utah that previously you could miss out on every couple of years, I think it makes it hard to develop a rivalry when you don't play every single year and you just play most years. But you know, USC, Utah, I don't think a big rivalry is going to develop with, with Utah. I just, I have a lot of respect for Utah fans and they're, you know, they're, they're avid fans. They're very passionate, but they're also really, really nice. And so I just can't feel, you know, even though they trounced us twice last year, I just can't feel like there could be a, a brewing sense of, you know, discontent between the, the two fan bases. I don't sense that there. USC, on the other hand, I think that rivalry could become, pretty legit you're gonna have recruiting battles between oregon and usc the two premier recruiting brands out here on the west coast and then if they're you know emerging as as the top two programs consistently in in this new format and going into the next four or five years dan lanning defensive coach lincoln riley offensive coach i think there's just a lot of storylines that could generate there so maybe you know, there there's some potential for that rivalry to grow a little bit more or maybe get renewed in that sense because USC just hasn't been as relevant as they were back in, you know, 2010 and 11 when you know, had the, the Storm LA and game day was there and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I mean, I, I know that we, we don't like USC a ton, but it doesn't feel the same as it used to, right? Because when a big brand like that that everybody used to dislike and love to root against is all of a sudden just way, way down, it's hard to to get up the same way as a fan and feel that extra level of intensity of passion of dislike for the other side when it when the stakes are lower and that's one of the reasons i'm actually kind of excited for usc to become relevant again because create more big games and yeah it's a potential loss for oregon that otherwise might have been a consistent a more consistent victory but you're going to have higher highs and you're going to have lower lows with, with with USC being really good. I don't think that's that's all a bad thing. Um, but, you know, outside of those schools, you know, we obviously you got the Beavs and the Huskies. I think our rivals are pretty set. And I don't I just don't sense sense that much animosity brewing with, with any other school. Um I mean, we've had some great games with Stanford over the years, but I don't even sense that there's, you know, a bidding rivalry there. It's just kind of sometimes they get us and sometimes we get them and hopefully we're able to get them more than than they beat us in uh, in a stretch of a few years and whatnot. And, and there have been some fantastic games, right? There have been big games with major implications. But take 2015, for instance. Vernon Adams goes down to Palo Alto. Stanford is seventh. They've only got one loss. They're in the college football playoff hunt. And we go down there and we play spoiler in a year that, once again, I will remind all Duck fans that I am adamant about this. If Vernon Adams doesn't hurt his finger, 
against Eastern Washington, and he's not playing hurt against Michigan State, and has to miss some time in there, that team goes back to the college football playoff because Stanford was a playoff caliber team, and we went in there and beat them because Vernon Adams was really, really good, and he didn't even know the playbook. He just took the snap, looked to see who was open, and went out there and, and made a play. Pretty pretty awesome guy to watch uh, Vernon Adams there. But, you know, when Oregon got that win over Stanford, it didn't feel like a rivalry win. It just felt like an exciting win. It was like, oh, wow, we played spoiler for a good team, and th- this is a good team, and maybe we'll be able to get to a good bowl game and finish strong down the stretch here in the regular season. I never felt that it would, you know, even given Oregon and Stanford's history of playing some big-time college game day games I, I just never felt that, that rivalry was there so i don't anticipate that developing in, in a significant way but i think the way that the scheduling can be done is fascinating i think it's a great opportunity i'm glad george kleofkoff the commissioner was the guy leading the charge because i i think this is a great regulation to get rid of and allow conferences to just say you know what two teams are the best winning percentage that's that's what it is and ultimately the next logical step at some point whenever that happens is you get rid of divisions. And that's why I'm talking about all the scheduling because divisions determine a lot of how the scheduling is done now. And I think the opportunities are, are then presented to, you know, be able to, to have some built in protected rivalries every year where Oregon, Utah, USC, UCLA are all playing each other every year. Whereas under the current system, they can miss each other in a given year. Right. And that happens pretty regularly because it just rotates around through the teams in the South in terms of who Oregon is not playing in a season. I think this year we missed USC and Arizona state, if I remember correctly, and we get everybody else. So I think that 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 is an exciting opportunity and and could be good news for duck fans. Even if it means the schedule is a little bit tougher, the conference needs to get a little bit tougher to, to get more respect on, on the national stage. We're going into a mailbag question next. And uh, this comes from someone who wants uh, a breakdown on of, of Oregon basketball players. And I'm going to grant his wish. Nine family Bryce hopped into the YouTube comments, which, by the way, another valid way to to get a question answered here on the show. I respond to those YouTube comments when when it is appropriate to do so. I check them every day. So if you want to hop in there and, and send me a message or ask a question or whatnot, by all means. But if you want to do it a traditional way, you can DM me at smalls underscore 55 or at locked on ducks. You can also tweet with the hashtag ask LOD pod. All three ways, all four ways, really, with YouTube comments are valid for getting your question answered here on the show thoughtfully and thoroughly by yours truly for all the world to hear. So he hopped into the YouTube comments. Nine family Bryce did. That's all I've got to go off of when it when it comes to a name and asked, hey, can you give a, a full breakdown of the, the players that Oregon has coming in for basketball this year? And, you know, the, the Dior Johnson's Tyrone Williams, Brennan Rigsby's of the world. So I, I want to give each one a pretty thorough run through. I don't want to kind of just skim off the top. I think we're going to go pretty in depth. So, you know, I'll do one, one a day this week and just kind of get through them all for, for the incoming freshmen and Juco transfers that, that we've got. And uh, first up today is Dior Johnson. So Dior is a highly rated four-star point guard from Southern California Academy, six, 180 pounds, 
His original verbal commitment was to Syracuse. That was long ago, but he ended up coming to Oregon over uh, the, the Orange, Bama, and Arizona State. When you watch him play, you know, I think the first thing that, that stands out to me is something that's not as spectacular, but he has a lot of really good traits. But he's not that phenomenal of an athlete. You think 6'3 point guard, well, maybe he's bamming out. Maybe he's got this really quick twitch or anything. He, he is pretty twitchy. But I'd say that, you know, he doesn't elevate. He's, he's not going to dunk a lot, right? Like Peyton Pritchard, who's only he's listed as six foot one. But listen, li- listing Peyton Pritchard at six foot one is like listing me at five ten. That's a that's a little generous. And I'm every inch of five, eight and a half. Thank you very much. But doesn't have a tremendous level of bounce. But at six, three, he's got good size for a guard. He's got a really smooth jumper. And though he doesn't have incredible jaw-dropping athleticism he does elevate really well on his jump shot and he's got a pretty high release you know unlike will richardson i'm not trying to throw jabs at him and and by the way just a a quick aside as of now it's Keyshawn bartholomew jermaine kuznard dior johnson and will richardson as the four guards coming in for oregon this year haven't heard anything about will richardson monitoring the situation as closely as i can we'll keep you updated here on the show which is why you should like and subscribe if you haven't already but as of now will richardson is back for his fifth year with oregon basketball we will be interested to see how that uh, how that goes but johnson when he rises to shoot gets it into a really nice shooting pocket and, and releases it kind of up closer to his head and that allows him to work in the mid-range much more easily he'll post up guards every now and then he can you know, hit a, a fallaway jumper from the block, but he, he's a real sort of mid-range maestro who can also step out and hit a three-pointer as well. But I think that's one thing that that differentiates him from a guy like Will Richardson, who's been just such a phenomenal player, good finisher at the rim, good defender, you know, very willing defender as well. Those are two different things, by the way, but he is he definitely both. Richardson, a great three-point shooter. I think Richardson's probably a little bit better shooter from beyond the arc, but when you're talking about the well-rounded offensive game, Johnson is a great finisher at the rim. He has a phenomenal handle that he uses exceptionally well when when working in the pick and roll, and that's what he uses most prominently along with that quick twitch because he's not you know incredibly explosive as an athlete. That's how he gets into that mid-range area, creates space for himself, and is able to to find shots but he does that a lot and he he also makes contested finishes at the rim a lot you know the sort of the sort of moves where gets inside takes contact from a guy going straight up and you know he's falling to the ground he's about to hit the ground you know and and it would be a travel if he hits it but then he gets it off just in time he's contorting his body every which way he loves the long righty scoop scoop layup off the glass as he drives to his left and one thing you notice and he doesn't have a ton of highlights doing this but he does have a couple and i think just when the way the way you watch him move and and put up shots kind of in the painted area he's got a really soft touch and you expect every guard to have that but i tell you what he is he is putting that ball off the glass with a feathery soft touch and and i think the potential for his float game which is what i was talking about a moment ago hasn't shown a a ton of it at least on his highlight reels but it's real it it is a real potential in terms of his ability to score in the mid-range area and around the basket because 
he is just really, really smooth and, and can just drop the ball like he's dropping it off the backboard almost rather than shooting it at the backboard. I, I really like his touch around the rim. And, you know, he, he's still willing to take contact inside. He's not shying away from it. He just he, he's a pretty physical finisher as he gets to the hole. But he, he just also does a nice job of, of just gently kissing the ball off the window. Um, not, not amazing athleticism. I, I think it's a, a touch above Peyton Pritchard, who, you know, dunked a couple times and it was a big deal every time that he did. But I don't think that's a, a key element to his game. And that's OK, because guys who are not relying on athleticism are typically very skilled. And Dior Johnson is most definitely that. In his highlight packages, he doesn't show a ton of pass- passing, but the 24-7 scattering report says that, that he can do it all. And you know, one thing I saw that, uh, that really put a, a futuristic image into my mind was him throwing up a lob. And I just had this wonderful vision of him getting into the paint, maybe attacking a 2-3 zone, suck up that middle defender, and then Kello Ware charges in from the baseline and he throws it up to him for a two-handed hammer and uh that that's something that i think we will see at some point in in oregon basketball's upcoming season hopefully in the future as well depending on whether or not Kellaware is a, a one and done at oregon but that's sort of that sort of play and uh and others that i think he can make and by and by the way solid three-point shooter looks perfectly comfortable not shy to shoot it you know he's he's got some range not peyton pritchard range but you know, Pritchard's range also grew during his during his career at Oregon. But I, I definitely see some similarities there to Pritchard, a little bit different. But the, the way that they can both, you know, they put the ball in a, in a similar shooting pocket and they can work in the mid range. They've got great handles, not relying on athleticism. I think there's some good similarities there. And, and the other thing that he clearly showed in his highlight reels, he plays with some dog. Like this guy is is an absolute alpha and you know he'll he'll bark at guys every now and then and he'll let you know that that he just made a bucket on you and and i like that because that was missing from this oregon team a season ago and he's coming into a crowded and and somewhat experienced backcourt so he might be the first guard off the bench but don't be surprised if if, you know let's say will richardson doesn't come back because i don't think he's going to and you start Bartholomew and Kuznard. don't be surprised if by the end of the year dior johnson is sneaking his way into the starting lineup because He's he shows a lot of really, really good traits, and I'm excited for him in the class of 2022. Uh, Nine Family Bryce, thanks for the question. I'll continue breaking down all the guys, Brennan Rigsby, Tyrone Williams, Kella Ware, the, the newcomers that are the newcomers that are the young guys coming in as uh, Kuznard and, and Bartholomew both have a, a little bit more experience in college basketball. But I appreciate everyone listening and making this your first listen. Go make Locked On Pack 12 where I'm hosting your second covering the Conference of Champions. I appreciate all of you. Have a wonderful rest of your day and go Ducks.